Would I have made a different decision had his outcome been as bad as the prognosis was? I don't know that I would have intervened to make him live a life attached to a machine. I don't know if I could do that. The wife part of me would want him around, but the partner part of me who knew him, I don't think I could have done that for him. Welcome to Speak Up For Your Health. I'm your host, Dr. Arkel Giorgio. In this podcast, I have conversations with patients about how they found their voice, figured out how to advocate for themselves, and finally got the medical care they needed. My goal is to give you the courage to speak up the next time you're getting care. Every year, more than 356,000 people in the U.S. have an out-of-hospital sudden cardiac arrest. Only one in five make it to the hospital alive, and only half of them survive the hospital stay and get discharged. For those who make it, it may seem like a miracle, and to some extent it is. But a successful recovery takes more than just excellent medical care. It takes a close family member or a friend who is constantly watching the patient's care like a hawk and accepts the emotional burden of making critical, life-altering decisions. That's the role Chris Patro took on for her husband, Dave, when he collapsed. Enjoy the show. In July of 2019, you and your family started down a health journey that no one would ever, ever want to experience. It was a Sunday night. It was July 7th, Mm -hmm. and you and Dave and your two kids had driven about six hours home after spending Fourth of July weekend in Iowa. Dave had driven most of the way, so instead of unpacking and doing laundry, you two sat down on the couch to watch an episode of Yellowstone. But then, within a few minutes, you heard a gasp, you looked over, and saw Dave listless. Take me back to that moment. It was like any other night we would have in front of the TV. But I heard this terrible gasp, it didn't even sound human, from Dave. And I looked over, and like you said, Arkel, he was lifeless on the couch next to me. His eyes were open, his mouth was open, but there was no one there. I got up and shook him, still no response. And so... I dragged him onto the floor and called 911 at the same time. Just a few months before, I had had CPR training at work and never thinking that I'd have to use it, especially on a family member. But those instincts just kicked in. And so I immediately started chest compressions. The 911 operator dispatched the EMTs and had me count out loud as I was doing chest compressions. What was going through my mind at the time was, it was like I was living in two separate worlds. There was the me who was trying to save my husband's life. And there was me, the wife, the partner, the mother to his children, who was freaking out underneath it all. But I knew I was his only chance. I performed CPR for nine and a half minutes before those EMTs arrived. And it was the longest nine and a half minutes of my life. Mind you, At no point did Dave ever take a breath, regain any kind of consciousness. When the EMTs arrived and took over, they had to shock him seven times before they got any response. 
And then they put a device on his chest called the Lucas device that kept the compressions going. I felt like I was living in a movie. While they were working on Dave, the police officer who accompanied them took me aside and started asking me all about Dave's health conditions and the medicines he was taking. And did I notice any signs or symptoms? And that's when I realized that not only was I the first link in Dave's chain of survival, but I was also his walking and talking medical record in an emergency situation. What do you mean you were his walking and talking medical record? And thank God you were, but what did you mean by that? I had to tell them what health conditions Dave had. I had to be knowledgeable about the medications he was taking. For example, Dave is a type 2 diabetic. He had a whole host of medicines that he took for that. Thankfully, my oldest daughter, Sammy, who walked in on me giving him chest compressions, ran upstairs and gathered all of his medicines into a Ziploc bag and brought them down to the officer. They were asking me to let them know how to manage his condition outside of the fatal one that they were dealing with. And I realized that no one could speak for my husband but me at that point. And from my knowledge of being married to him for some, you know, 19, 20 years. So Chris, there are a lot of people that I talk to that can't recite their own list of medications, let alone their partner's list of medications. So had Dave had an event before where you felt responsible to make sure you knew, or was this just how you function and a priority for you? Wow, that's a great question, Arkel. I have been with Dave since he was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, and I've been on that journey with him. But it's interesting that you asked because I never really took the time to understand his entire regimen until he did have a health event a few years earlier where he wound up in the hospital with pancreatitis. And they asked me a bunch of questions about his medications. And so I think, and I hadn't thought of this before, but that really did solidify for me that I needed to be aware of my partner's medical history and his medications in case something like that ever happened again. And it did. This is a little bit of a tangent, but I'm wondering if he was ever resistant to that? Did he just say, don't worry about it, I got it. It's none of your business. Uh, Actually, with Dave, it was not. One of the things that I feel very blessed to have had in my career is for a good number of years, I was a healthcare journalist. And so I've always had a measure of insight into critical care issues, medications, et cetera. And when Dave and I got together, he deferred to that. So when it came to healthcare things, he always shared with me, and I rely on him for the same kinds of things in different areas of expertise. But we made sure to have those conversations early on in our relationships, so we were able to advocate for each other. He's a smart man. Um, <laughs> he is a smart man. <laughs> right. Yes, he, he is. So back to this story. You rode Mm -hmm. with him in the ambulance to the hospital and the paramedics asked you whether you wanted them to take him to the nearest hospital or a hospital that was further away, the University of Minnesota, but taking him to university might give him a better chance of surviving. Mm -hmm. You chose the university. 
How did you make that decision in that moment? It was an unexpected decision that I would have to make. So several years before Dave and I experienced this, we had gone through the exercise of drafting out our healthcare directives and getting those on file. So it forced us to have the conversation about how we would approach critical situations when the other one was unable and we became each other's power of attorney. I knew from those conversations that I had with Dave that he would like to have the best chance for a quality survival if you were to survive at all, rather than just surviving. Although it's hard to feel confident in such a terrible moment, I felt confident that by choosing the hospital with his best chance for a quality survival, I was honoring his wishes and also my wishes for the kind of marriage that we had built over the years. But it was because we had that conversation when our kids were just two years old and 10 months old that I was able to make that choice. Did you ever worry? Like, what if I made the wrong decision? What if the extra few miles would make a difference? Or were you at peace with, Mm. you knew what he would want? Honestly, I still struggle with that to this day, Arkel. It's a decision that I never wanted to have to make. I wonder if things would have gone better or worse had I made the other decision. I could only be guided by the conversations that we had had and my understanding of what he wanted. Um, So yeah, did I feel at peace? I don't know if I could ever feel at peace. Did I feel confident that I was honoring his word? Yes, I did. I don't know if ever as a person who helps another survive, you never know if you did enough, I think. At least I don't. I don't want to generalize to everyone, but you always wonder, is there something else I should have done? And I guess that's what led me to do everything I could at the beginning before either of us was sick, because I never wanted to try and figure it out on the fly. A quick comment here, and then we'll get back to Chris's story. There's nothing else that Chris could have done. She was really fortunate that the EMTs were even aware of the advanced capabilities at the university versus the closer hospital. And she, even in the midst of sheer fear and chaos, she used that information to give Dave the best chance of survival. Here's an important tip to keep in mind. The closest hospital to you may be the most convenient, but it isn't necessarily where you have the best chance of having a good outcome. For a heart attack, a stroke, or sudden cardiac arrest, larger hospitals and academic centers tend to have better results, and may be worth the extra few minutes of transport time. If you have time to do some research for an elective surgery, Hospital Compare is a free online tool that lets you compare hospital complication and survival rates for different conditions. I'll put the link in the show notes. At the University of Minnesota, Dave was diagnosed as having a sudden cardiac arrest. He was um, admitted to the cardiac intensive care unit, put into a medically induced coma. They lowered his temperature, which is a therapy that's used to try to decrease the risk of brain damage. And you said you were immediately asked whether you had those medical directives, which you did, 
And I have to say that it is really unusual for people in their early 50s to have those discussions, to have those documents in place. In fact, studies show that only one in three adults overall have advanced directives in place. And that statistic is so much lower for people who were as young as you and Dave. Why did you guys have those in place? I think it was two things, Arkel. One was we were older parents of very young children. I didn't have my first child until I was 39, my second one at 41. And I knew what was at stake if I suddenly was not in the picture because I'm an older parent. And Dave and I were both journalists in our former careers. And I can't tell you how many stories we covered of young children who had lost both parents in some tragic way. And there were no directions for anyone as to what to do with these children. And it was tragedy upon tragedy because there was no plan for these kids. Or stories that we had to cover about a spouse or a partner who was left behind having to deal with their loved one's estate and their wills and dispersing their property with no idea as to where to begin and what their rights were. And so I think witnessing those things as journalists, Dave and I decided that it's too important to leave to chance. And when you're in the middle of a crisis like this, that's the last time you should have to try and figure all of this out. So when our kids were young, we just made sure that we did that because we didn't want to be the next bad news story about children being left behind or spouses being left destitute because there was no plan. Chris, even when we get older, there is so much potential for emotional burden on the surviving family. There's so much potential for conflict within the family. I mean, how many times have we heard of the multiple children of a parent who's dying having different opinions about what mom or dad would have wanted? And so not talking about it, not stating what you want is really putting a burden on your family or the people who are making those decisions. It's not doing them any favors. Arkel, I'll share a funny story. And maybe this also contributed to why Dave and I did this. When my mother was 85 years old, she sat me down and had me write her obituary. Get it done ahead of time. And I thought, this is the most awful thing you've ever asked me to do. But she had input. I drafted an obituary. She went and prepaid for everything for her funeral, her burial. And then she gave each of us kids a phone number to the funeral home because once she died, all we had to call was that number and everything would be taken care of. She didn't die for another six years. But you know what? When she did, we called that one number. And there was nothing left to chance. And I so appreciated that gift to me from her because each of us kids knew what to do and what she wanted. We had the same experience with my husband's mom who had everything prepaid. It was sort of capitated, like like HMO insurance. It was capitated. It was all taken care of. She did pass (laughs) in 2008. But my mom, who's still living, has it all taken care of down Mm -hmm. to the color of that casket. She knows exactly (laughs) what she wants to be in. And we have one number to call. So I I really appreciate what my mother-in-law did and what my mother has done. So I I get it. And congratulations to you for doing that. So as his healthcare power of attorney, you faced a dilemma 
when you found out his brain damage was likely worse than you thought? And I've actually hesitated asking you this question a little bit. Can you talk about what you learned about what his future prognosis would be and then what the dilemma was? Um, yes. And it is hard to talk about because it, it goes back to, you know, potential survivor's guilt. Did I do enough? For some reason, they weren't able to safely raise Dave from his medically induced coma. Um, he couldn't handle consciousness. He was a danger to himself. And so they decided after, gosh, it was almost two weeks to do an MRI of his brain. And it was a repeat MRI. And they discovered that there was more damage, which showed up as white patches in his brain, than had been there initially when they did the initial scan, which indicated greater brain damage. In their assessment, there were three possible outcomes. The first being Dave might never be able to safely regain consciousness. The second would be maybe he would be able to come home but have round-the-clock nursing care in our home. And third, maybe he should go straight to a nursing home. I think that was probably even a greater sense of loss because it took minutes to know that he survived the initial event. But this was a window into our future that I had no ability to see myself in, see him in, or our children. And um, in order to determine best next steps for Dave, they called a meeting of his entire care team, which was his cardiologist, his neurologist, a family care coordinator, all of the experts who had you know, been in the foxhole with us for Dave's care. And we got both families on the phone to join us and um, talk through the options. And all I could do at that moment was hang on to the words that we had talked about when we put our healthcare directives and our powers of attorney together, what we would want. And we decided to, as a next step, based on how Dave progressed, look into an acute rehabilitation hospital, Bethesda on the condition that he would regain consciousness and we would see how well he could progress from there. But it was a terrible time. Any hope we had was kind of flying out the window. And the only thing I had to hang on to were the directions that he made very clear to us in his directive. So Chris, if he hadn't written his wishes down, would your decision have been different Oof. Wow. What I knew in my heart is that Dave would not want to live in a vegetative state or a state in which he couldn't enjoy the company of family and friends, interact with them, feel and show love. I knew that. I wondered to myself if if there were no quality of life to be had and he couldn't survive without machine assistance, what my decision would have been. Um, thankfully, I didn't have to make that decision. Would I have made a different decision had his outcome been as bad as the prognosis was? I don't know that I would have intervened to make him live a life attached to a machine. I don't know if I could do that. The wife part of me would want him around but the partner part of me who knew him, I don't think I could have done that for him. 
And how did you navigate his family? And did they have any other thoughts about how to move forward? Or did it help them as well to have Dave's voice be on paper? Um, Sharing those documents with them so that they too could see in writing what Dave's wishes were took away the stress over trying to figure out what he wanted. And that was a gift to us because we were all on Team Dave, but Team Dave needed a playbook. And that directive provided us with a playbook that we could use to make the best decisions we could at the time. Yeah. How do you involve two young children? Because they weren't so young that they were oblivious. Your one daughter collected all of his medications while he was dying in your living room. So therefore, they were old enough to need some information. How do you navigate that? Mm -hmm. That's the hard part about being the spouse of someone who's critically ill and the mother of the children you're raising together. And how do you walk that fine line between being there and advocating for your partner and being there and helping your children? And I, I will say, I'm sure I didn't do it perfectly, but um, our family had been through a couple of family deaths before together. And I remembered that when I was little, when my grandparents were sick and were dying, my parents tried to protect me from the truth about what was going on. And I, I don't blame them, but I remember that I felt left out of opportunities to say goodbye. And so with Sammy and Alex, who are our great kids, Sammy was 16 at the time. I remember her walking into the living room where I was doing CPR on Dave. And it was like the look on her face was one of the childhood left her body, but the adult self wasn't ready to kick in yet. But Sammy just said, what should I do? And she sprung into action. Alex hid in their room. They heard what was going on, but they couldn't bear to see it. Being very honest with them and letting them know what was going on and being very factual and also not promising them anything was the way that I navigated it. I made sure that we, you know, we brought in the village who could help me care for them, family, friends, neighbors. And then I made sure that I walked them through the experience that we were having at the hospital and The best I could do was just reassure them that we would be okay no matter what. But there was no sunshine and rainbows for a very long time. They just heard the hard truth and a commitment to getting through it together. Yeah. Wow. How hard. Um, About two weeks later, (laughs) Dave got a tracheostomy, which is a small opening in the throat, like where the Adam's apple is. And then they can put a breathing tube in that location, which can stay there for a long time. And that sounds like it was a turning point for Dave where he was able to wean off of that sedation and be able to interact. It was. And in fact, they did two things. They implanted an ICD, um, internal cardio defibrillator. Did I get that right? It's close enough. It's fine. Close enough. (laughs) And also the tracheostomy. Once they put in the tracheostomy, he was more amenable to coming out of the medically induced coma. And I forget which day it was. It was one of the first days in August. He actually woke up and asked for me. Wow. Which was probably 
one of the greatest days of my entire life. He hadn't spoken my name for five weeks. And when he woke up, he said, where's my wife? Oh my goodness. I get cold chills. And, uh, it still chokes me up because, um, you know, I'd be saying, where the hell am I? But all he said was, where's my wife? Ugh. So that was a big turning point for us. And it all of a sudden brought back the hope that we could move to the next step, which would be Bethesda Acute Care Hospital. They said it would be likely between Thanksgiving and Christmas before he would be ready to be discharged and come home. But based on his previous prognosis, that felt pretty, that felt pretty wonderful. So um, lots of hope. And Dave was doing really well at Bethesda until he wasn't. And that's where we're going to stop part one of this story and come back in the next episode of Speak Up For Your Health to talk about what happened next. And most importantly, how Dave and how you and Dave and your whole family are doing today. So far, Dave had beaten the odds and Chris was his lifeline. She did three things that everyone can do to prepare for the worst and give someone you love the best chance for the quality of life they want and deserve. First, get CPR certified. Studies consistently show that people who live in communities with higher rates of CPR certification have higher rates of survival after out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Second, have an advanced directive before you ever need one. In fact, everyone over the age of 18 should have one because bad things can unfortunately happen at any age. Having an advanced directive keeps you in control, and it's also a gift to the people who bear the responsibility for making decisions on your behalf. And three, know your loved one's medical history and the medications they're on. It's not being nosy. It could save their life. I hope you come back for part two of Chris and Dave's story when Chris introduces you to Patro 3.0, the patient advocate inside of her that gets unleashed when things go south. Thank you for listening to this episode of Speak Up For Your Health. If you enjoyed it, I hope you leave a rating and review, recommend this podcast to friends and family, and share the link on social media. If you have your own story about finding your voice and advocating for yourself, please share it with me. I'd love to hear it. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook. The links are in the show notes. Speak Up For Your Health is produced and edited by Jenny Lee Park and myself. Music is by Alex Tepper. Cover art is by Sean Sutton. Marketing and social media is by Shelby Epstein.